Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. This is Writers on Film, the only podcast dedicated to books on cinema. Hello everybody and welcome to Writers on Film. My name is John Bleasdale and today I'm talking to Sarah Welsh Larson, who is the author of the book Becoming Alien, the beginning and end of evil in science fiction's most idiosyncratic film franchise. It's a fascinating original piece of work and it looks at all the alien films in the original quadrology and then the two follow-up films by Ridley Scott, Prometheus and Alien Covenant, with a new eye which will send you back to the series looking for hidden gems and, and a new sort of comprehension, new way of looking at it, as you'll hear from our conversation. Please, if you like the episode, remember to review it if you can. If you have a second, like, subscribe, tweet about it, Facebook, Instagram, whatever you can to spread the word on social medias. Also, would you uh, take some time and maybe go over to Cinema Italia podcast, which is a new sister podcast that I'm running uh, to look at the delights of Italian cinema. But before you do any of that, please enjoy the conversation. It's part of the Real Spirituality monograph series, which is put out by Cascade Books. They're an imprint of Whiff and Stock. And um, my editor saw me tweet something really dumb, which I guess is the origin story for a lot of good things. <laughs> um, normally, I don't do the um, norm normally I don't do like quote tweet with your preference or your favorite movie or whatever. But somebody was doing some sort of a Twitter chain that was what's something that you can talk about for 20 minutes without any preparation at all. And I quote tweeted it with a couple of things like, you know, houseplants and then this webcomic that I used to follow. And one of the topics that I included was theology and science fiction. And my editor reached out to me via Twitter DMs and said, um, I am like the acquiring editor for this monograph imprint. Would you be interested in pitching a book for it? And I'd been thinking about writing a book for a little while. I'd just gotten out of a job that took all of my time and into one that gave me the ability to, you know, sit and think for once. And um, so I took a couple of months to think about it. I knew that I wanted to write about science fiction and something to do with the problem of evil. And I went back and rewatched a couple of movies just to get a feel for what they were talking about, about the topic, because I don't want to impose any ideas on the movies that I write about. And the Alien series seemed like a really natural fit. Um, at the time, I think I had I had seen every single one of them except maybe the back half of Alien Resurrection. And so when I went back and I rewatched Alien Resurrection and realized that it fit kind of the themes that I was considering engaging with, that's when I knew that the book was going to work. So um, I pitched it. My editor, um, Elijah Davidson, he's wonderful. Um, 
And uh, he was really excited about it. And then it just kind of went from there. And it was a very swift writing process, too, because I knew that if I didn't impose like a very strict deadline on myself, I just wouldn't write it. I, I need to write under a deadline. So I think it was something like six to eight weeks of research, literally just coming home every night and research for two ish hours um, and then after that, I think the book was written in about three months. I turned in the manuscript three months after that. So um, breakneck pace, never doing that again. But <laughs> it all came from uh, just kind of a spur of the moment tweet um, about how I was willing to just talk about religion and sci-fi basically at the drop of a hat. I, I was probably thinking about Battlestar Galactica at the time, but the Alien series also felt like a good fit. The uh, old TV series or the new one? The reboot. So I actually haven't seen the old TV series and the reboot. Uh, I'm going to date myself, but I was just a little bit young for it when it was on the air. But I remember my parents watching it. And then I went through and watched it one summer and it just completely blew me away. And it's I'm bad at TV, but it's one of those TV shows that um, I go back and I revisit every once in a while. So when I found out that my husband hadn't seen it, I was like, you have to watch this partly to understand how my brain works. And then also partly because it's just really good TV. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. It's a, I, I'm a real big fan of the of the the reboot. The, I mean, the old version is is kind of a Star Wars ripoff. I think in England they because I saw I saw the pilot episode of the Battlestar Galactica, the original one, at the cinema mm. because in oh, England whoa. they actually showed it at the cinema because they you know they they thought this is good enough for the Brits. The Brits won't <laughs> the, they won't know the difference. Well, that was the era of Doctor Who, right? So kind of. Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, Doctor Who went goes way back. Doctor Who goes way back to sort of black and white TVs, like the Mm -hmm, the mm -hmm. early sixties, I think. Yeah, Um, I've seen bits and pieces of the Tom Baker era, but I haven't seen mm. much else since the Christopher Eccleston reboot. And then I sort of dropped off in the last few years. But I I do like what I've seen. I had a very big Doctor Who phase in high school. (laughs) Yeah, it's it's major majorly popular. uh, The sort of the post as you say post Eccleston because Tom Baker was my Doctor Who when I was a kid mm. um I, I was traveling in Texas and I was in like a supermarket and um I asked uh one of the clerks where something was and he heard my accent and he was like oh where are you from England oh I'm a I'm a Whovian are you a Whovian and, so, <laughs> and, and it was just like in this small you know little town in 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 you know nowhere texasville and uh and yeah he he wanted to know all about doctor who so it's That's reach delightful. a spread <laughs> yeah it has i i suspect it's partly because of the advent of streaming because i think i got into doctor who on bbc america i babysat mm. a lot and i watched a lot of late night tv after like i put the kids to bed mm. and so that's how i found the david tennant doctor who and then i went back and watched um, the Eccleston era on Netflix DVD. And that would have been right around the same time that it really, the series really started to explode over here. And I think a lot of it was just because we had the access to it. Wow. Now you are dating yourself with Netflix uh, just DVD. A little bit. <laughs> <laughs> I think I got it as a high school graduation present, um, which was lovely for my film education. Actually, I wasn't very much into movies before I graduated high school. And then after that, I realized, oh, wait, I can go and I can just sit down and watch something by myself. And it was just a complete revelation. Yeah, you don't have to wait for permission or or that there are two or three people together who all want to watch the same thing. Exactly. Yes. 
And so what, what, where are you, you were saying you were sort of doing um, other jobs and everything. Are you in academia or, or you know, because uh, to, to write a book like this, and it's extremely, you know, it's a very, com- it's more than competently, that's that's damning with faint praise. It's a, a well, a brilliantly written book. So, Thank you. Um, you know, are you coming, are you in academia as your, as, uh, as your professional life? I am not. Um, And I also wasn't a film studies person. So in college, my degree is in linguistics. And then I came out to Chicago to get a master's degree um, in the humanities, but with a focus in linguistics, so syntax Mm. and semantics. Um, And then I worked at an advertising agency for a few years because that was the first place that offered me a job after I graduated. And grad school is very expensive. Um, And then after that, I ended up working for and I still work for an industrial um, distribution company. So um, we're we're known for having like a very large catalog full of industrial supplies. If your main if your um, if your production line goes down, then we can send you the part next day. And we were doing that before Amazon. So but Mm. the nice part about that job is there is a very high level of academic rigor in the way that we publish the parts that we sell. And there's also a very good work-life balance. And so I was working from seven to four every single day and didn't have to worry about working overtime like I had been at the ad agency. And all of a sudden I had all of this free time, didn't know what to do with it. And movies just sort of came in and filled all of that negative space. And uh, that's where the love for movies and my writing career started to take off. And then um, that's how I was able to find the time to just sit down and write. And I also have a very supportive husband who was extremely understanding. And as long as we had a couple of nights a week where it was just him and me and we could go on date nights and things like that, he Mm. was totally fine with me sitting down and reading because we're both introverts anyway. So we were going to end up reading side by side no matter what. So and and where does the theology come from then? Because that's uh, that that was one of the things that you were talking about in your original tweet. tweet. Yes. Yeah. So um, I was raised evangelical and I'm not that anymore. Um, I'd identify as kind of an angry Episcopalian more than anything else. Mm. Um, But because I was raised in a part of the church that is very focused on close reads and on trying to understand the text and trying to interpret the text, that's something that I've always just naturally gravitated towards. So um, it's something where it's the framework with which I approach the world. And it's something that I can't fully divorce myself from. Mm. And my approach toward the text has shifted as my own theology has shifted. Um, But it's something where if there is a theological read of something, then I'm naturally just going to gravitate towards trying to understand a topic within those terms. So I just saw Oppenheimer this week. It's out this weekend as we're recording this. And one of the things that struck me about the film is the way that sin and the consequences of our actions reverberate backwards and forwards through time. And that's just Mm -hmm. something that occurred to me as I was watching the movie. It seems to be like a pretty intentional um, theme that Nolan is setting up, but I was, I automatically gravitated towards the spiritual read of it because that's just what I naturally do at this point. Yeah. He's, he's, I mean, I'm not going to be able to see it because it doesn't come out until august the 20th in italy unfortunately oh, uh, yeah i'm seriously looking at flights <laughs> i'm seriously <laughs> thinking why don't i just fly to london and see the film um yeah. but it's uh but yeah he he is a filmmaker i very much admire and he does seem to have this very consistent sort of 
idea of um yeah i wouldn't necessarily have phrased it as sin but of guilt of of um yes of a good person doing a bad thing for a good result and that sort mm-hmm. of run i mean i i think of it as a big fat lie you know he'll somebody tells a lie in order and i i guess the ur text of that is insomnia where the policeman sort of manipulates evidence to put away the the pedophile mm-hmm. and that yeah. obviously just is the poisoned tree from which all the fruit is there is then poisoned in a legal sense but also in a moral sense yeah and i think maybe some of the sin read also comes from twin peaks the return which i'm going to admit up front i have not seen but i have read enough about mm. that i know that there's a there is a theme in there that has to do with the explosion of the trinity bomb the te- the first test of the atom bomb mm. being sort of a catalyst for sin and harm spiraling out into the universe as well. So um, I think it's something that Nolan's thinking about. I think it's just kind of on the brain for a lot of very creative people at the moment. And it's such a powerful image that that mushroom cloud and then the harm that falls out from it that I totally understand why people would gravitate towards that as being, you know, an example of maybe not original sin, but certainly a very powerful one that should not have been unleashed in the universe. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And I, I've just heard an interview with, I think it's Robert Downey Jr. And it's one of those silly interviews where they're they're completing sort of uh, search questions, the mm. uh, automated search questions. And he explains his fascination as partly being because he grew up in the 80s, which, which I did as well. And I think Downey Jr. Mm. did as well. And it, it, the nuclear bomb was very present as a threat. I mean, more present than climate change is today, which is kind of strange considering how much damage climate change is doing today. Maybe mm-hmm. that's where we're going. Maybe that's the direction we're going in. But um, I remember it being like a clear and present, as a child, thinking it was a clear and present danger that we could, mm-hmm. you know, we could all be wiped out at any minute, you know? That's that's devastating circumstances to be raised under. So, yeah, yeah. And both, I think, perpetuated by human beings and sort of um, triggered by human beings, but in a way where um, the consequences of that aren't something that you could trace back to one person or one origin point, And yet we're all culpable in it at the same time, you know, like it's mm. it's a devastating thing to think about. And there is some form of responsibility, I think, on each of us, but it's also not something that any one of us is capable of fixing in the moment. And that's really where the the sin thing tends to resonate with me. Mm, absolutely. Yes. Yes. And okay, well, let's, let's, um, the structure of your book is, is very much influenced by a, um, a theologian that you, that you sort of bring in to use as your, as your sort of frame with yes. which to then, and this is, uh, excuse me if I get the name wrong, is it Catherine Keller? Yes, Dr. Catherine Keller. Mm-hmm. Yes. Could you just explain uh, sort of where you come across uh, Catherine Keller and, and what she provides you with? Um, so the book that I'm engaging with is called Face of the Deep, A Theology of Becoming. And it's a book that is ostensibly just about challenging the idea that God created the world ex nihilo, so out of nothing. Um, she posits that the first two verses of Genesis talk about uh, the earth being formless and void. And so there was something already there and then divine 
spark, divine justice, God, whatever you want to call it, mm. put everything into relationship with each other. So objects, animals, human beings, everything was given its form and then put into relationship. And then from that, it follows that sin would be the denial of those interrelationships with each other. So um, instead of sin being an act of disobedience, which is pretty common in Christian theology, mm. it's more about denying the createdness of other beings and of other objects and saying, no, you're not enough in and of yourself. I'm going to treat you as a tool or as an object or as something that is not living into the fullness of your created being. And that kind of unlocked the alien movies for me. And I know that sounds a little bit galaxy brained, but the entire alien series is concerned with the idea that, um, human beings are trapped in a system that does not value them for who they are. Mm. And they're trapped in a system that is functionally going to completely dismember them, turn them into carriers for something else that could po possibly turn a profit. And then by doing that also destroy them. So you get that with the alien, with the face hugger monster, which literally covers a person's face, takes away their entire identity, turns them into an incubator. And then as the human gives birth to the alien, they're also destroyed and essentially turned into a corpse. And I think it's tempting to say that the alien is the ultimate expression of evil because it is something that we can't fully understand. It's an eldritch horror from beyond the stars. But I would argue that the real villain of all of the alien movies is the ravenous capitalism that the company engages in as it tries to harness that alien and turn it into a weapon. So the company both treats the crew as expendable in that first film and then also wants to take something else and turn it into a profit too. So the alien isn't just a villain here. In some cases, it could also potentially be a victim of that ravenous desire to turn something else into a tool for profit. That's, that is amazing. That's a really, a really cogent, really interesting sort of way of looking at it. It sheds new light on it. Um, I, how does that then relate to Ripley as a figure who is, you know, uh, how does that relate to, say, feminist readings of Ripley as who, especially in the first film, is kind of the last girl, if you like, but but yes. by the end of the series has become a figure uh, almost, you know, well, certainly iconic, almost mythological. Definitely. Yeah. I mean, in the first movie, she's kind of a company woman. She's mm. willing to toe the line. She works by the book. She actually sort of throws the book at both Dallas and at Ash as she's trying to ensure the safety of the crew because she thinks that the rules that the company has set up for her are there to protect her. And those rules aren't there to protect her. They're to protect the company profits. And as she goes throughout the series, as, as the movies progress onward, she sort of grows and develops into her own person instead of being a company woman. So the first film is sort of an awakening for her that she's more than just what the company wants her to be and do. She can defy company orders and she can work to preserve life, human life in terms of the crew that she's trying to protect, and then also um, other animal life. There's Jonesy who's in there as well, and she actually goes back for the cat. And I think a lesser person would have just abandoned the cat and said, maybe that'll be a distraction enough for the alien. And then as the films go on, she starts to react to the evil that she's been presented with in the form of the company and in the form of the alien. And her goal is to preserve life and to 
protect other people from the harm that that evil is going to inflict on them. So when she gets back to Earth in Aliens, she's interested in who is who else is going to come in contact with the aliens on LV-426. And the moment that she finds out that there are families there, she's devastated by it. And her actions sort of spiral out throughout the rest of the films, at least the first four anyway, where her goal is not so much to preserve her own life like it is more in the first film. It's mm. to preserve other people's lives and it's to protect other people, even the lowest of the low, even the convicts on Furina. Um, she recognizes that there's still human beings, even though the convicts in Alien 3 don't even really see themselves as human much anymore. And I think that's the most radical part about her is that she is a woman in a certain sense, being a woman, she's probably used to being re reduced to her gender and not to be recognized as a full human being. And you really get that in Alien 3, especially the mm. first two movies don't really bring her gender into it all that much. Um, and then going on from there, just working to um, preserve life mm. and to destroy something that would take away that life, whether that's just treating other people as tools or actually destroying them and killing them. Yeah, that's. I mean, that's so fascinating in terms of that the the relationship between how you're looking at this with with that theological idea, because ultimately, um, it it is about. I I I'll just well, I, this is probably my best way of introducing it. When I was a kid, I loved science fiction. I was a huge huge science fiction fan. I I, <laughs> I still am today. It hasn't hasn't changed that much. But when I was a kid, I was also being brought up in a Catholic household and. Uh. Um, uh, the, a uh, pretty strictish Catholic household. I mean, went to church three times a week, that sort of thing. Gotcha. And um, and uh, um, I remember there being a real conflict. Now, not necessarily from my parents. My dad wasn't uh, religious at all, by the way, but my mum was. Um, mm. I, I, there was a real conflict in me that when I was reading science fiction, I kept thinking, okay, but where, you know, where's God in this? Where's where? Mm. How does the, how does it? How is this consistent with? How is the force consistent with Christianity or Catholicism? <laughs> yeah. You know, not <laughs> not just like you know, oh, God created everybody, but you know, He created Chewbacca as well. I mean, how does that work? You know, how does it? <laughs> yeah. Um, and, and in a sense that. Yeah, I lost that Catholicism as part of my you know, teenage, as my intellectual mm -hmm. development, my teenage life. I don't want to. I don't want to, by brevity, uh, diminish the importance of any of these things. Mm -hmm. um, but just for the sake of brevity, that's what happened. Very recently, it's not that I've found my faith again because I haven't. But what I have done is, I've realised that there are questions that are really interesting and are really religious questions. Um, and they don't necessarily depend upon you believing in uh, a, a mm. conventional Christianity or or even a sort of some sort of spiritual framework or anything like that. But a simple question as as in why do we exist or where does evil come from or you know who am I in relationship to other things? Mm. Those questions are deeply religious questions. And they're important whether or not, you know, you have a faith, you know, mm -hmm. faith is not an essential component of asking those questions. In fact, it could be argued um, not having faith makes those questions even more vital 
to, mm. to explore and to ponder. Mm. Um, so when I was reading your book and I was thinking about this and I was thinking about that idea that where do you get ethics from and where what is evil, then that idea that it's how you treat people and a system such as the company and the, the feral capitalism that it represents treats people just like components as dis disposable bits mm -hmm. um, is kind of, that's where the, the evil is. That's the inherent evil. Whereas in some ways, I'm sorry, this is a really long comment, but no, you're good. Um, in some ways, as you said, the xenomorph, the alien itself, is just being a shark you know it's just doing its thing it's got a you know complicated life cycle and that sort of stuff but it's it's just doing what it does and it in itself it's cancer you know it's leukemia mm -hmm. it's the part of creation that that kills things and and it's 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 amoral you know it's just not whereas the company is has, is the result of a series of decisions Mm -hmm. yeah. You know, and um, how does that fit with what that that was what I was thinking while I was reading that was sort of back and forth thing with your book uh, in my head? Yeah, um, it's funny. Um, when I was working on the book, I was I was talking about um, the first chapter with a group of students and one of them compared the xenomorph to a tiger. So definitely like that apex predator idea. Mm. Um, and I think those questions of faith are something that science fiction is really, truly, deeply interested in. And part of me wonders if that might be part of the reason why sci-fi can sometimes be dismissed. I feel like it does; it is not as dismissed now as it was maybe in the mid-century. Mm. Um, but science fiction is very much focused on questions of who we are and where we're going and how do we get there and how do did we get to this point? And sometimes you can bring in that matter of faith or not. Um, and either way, I agree. I completely agree with you. I think it's an important question. And for me, faith is kind of the framework that I use to be able to wrestle with those questions. Mm. And crucially, I think um, if faith is the if my faith specifically, everything that I believe is the one true answer to everything, then I think that I've I've ultimately failed because then I'm claiming that I have all of the answers. And that kind of takes away the subjectivity of everybody else around me, too, because I'm denying their ability to think and reason and believe what they want to believe as well. So it's a it's a way of moving through the world but i think it's something that should never be imposed on any one other person because that would also be denying those people's subjectivity and their ability to mm. think and reason too um which is part of the reason why dr keller's work resonates with me so strongly at this point i was going to say yeah because that goes against the idea of continual becoming as well the minute you say right sorted it all you know everything's done i've sorted it out i have all the answers you stop becoming because you stop searching you stop yearning for 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 some more clarity yeah you go static and mm. i guess to to steal an idea from another from from a mid-century author to steal from frank herbert you know that way lays stagnation mm. and um once you stagnate then there's no room for growth or further discovery you're just kind of stuck with what you've already got and i don't know about you but i don't want to be stuck with the world we currently have i think that there is a better world that is possible and for me that seems like a really good um expression of 
what God is and is capable of doing and being. Um, but again, I don't want to impose that on anybody else because I also could very much be wrong. And that's where the faith part comes in, I think. I, I Earlier on when I was talking about the alien and I did say sort of quite rapidly, oh, it's got a complicated life cycle. But that's something mm -hmm. that you actually uh, sort of concentrate on at a certain point and say this life cycle thing is kind of um, it's kind of interesting, right? Yeah, it is. Um, I love Giger's work. I, th I think mm. he's just such an incredible artist. And I'm so glad that he was willing to share a lot of his nightmares with us. Um, and I've been thinking about the alien partly in terms of, you know, being that shark, being that tiger, being that apex predator. But the alien is also fundamentally designed to be a human being's worst nightmare again because mm. it's going to suffocate you it's going to take away your identity it's going to turn you into a cradle for its own young and then that's if you're lucky and if you're unlucky it's still going to kill you pretty horribly and i think i get into that throughout the book but um there's also a thread of the creation of the alien in the later two movies in the series. So the book is um, designed around each of the movies as they come out in chronological order. So Alien, Aliens, Alien 3, Alien Resurrection, and then Prometheus and Covenant really get into the idea of the horror of creation itself and what human beings are trying to do as they attempt to create other beings and then destroy other people in the process, especially um, with Michael Fassbender's character of David. And I love that Ridley Scott was willing to go back to that well 40 mm. years after the first movie because he's not interested in just explaining, oh, this is how the alien got its double jaw or something. Like he's he's interested in those deeper philosophical questions of why would someone even think to conceive of a creature like this in the first place? And I think a lot of that kind of goes back to that idea of ravenous capitalism because mm. the final movie at least so far in this series, deals with the android David creating the alien as an act or an attempt to create something that is more perfect than his own creators and more perfect than he himself is. And the only way that he knows how to do that is to make something that's going to destroy other beings. So he refers mm -hmm. to it as a perfect organism and he refers to it as that partly is a callback to the original movie, but also partly because I think the only way that he knows how to exist is to destroy and to deny other people. And that's mm. a really sad existence. And I find that to be the deepest horror out of all of the series. And that's also part of the reason why I just I love Alien Covenant, because it's a, an interesting riff on Frankenstein's monster and on Paradise Lost and on all of these other deeper questions, but it's also, you know, just like a pulp B movie that <laughs> happens to have a xenomorph in it. It's it's one of my favorite movies from that year. And it's something that just kind of grabbed me. And a lot of that has to do with Fassbender's performance, but then a lot of that also has to do with the fact that Ridley Scott says, screw all of you who aren't interested in all of these deep philosophical questions. I'm going to go off and I'm going to make basically a philosophical treatise using the IP that I have available to me, because that's probably the only way I'm going to be able to tell this story anyway. That, that's so true. And I, I love the way that uh, you, I think you say this in the book as you sort of go through it. So it's sort of like the first film is, is like your basic sort of. 
Do you love anime, gaming, movies, and discovering how your favorite pop culture affects everything you do? Then join us on Crunchyroll Presents The Anime Effect. I'm Nick Friedman. I'm Lee Alec Murray. And I'm Leah President. Every week you can listen in while we break down the latest pop culture news and dish on what new releases we can't get enough of. Whether you love movies, I'm going to tell you all about the uh, hopeful 4K re-release of Tron Legacy that happens. (laughs) (laughs) I'm right there with you. Or music. The music in this show is absolutely incredible. Or anime. And under this mask is another mask. (laughs) (laughs) You can discover your new favorites right here on The Anime Effect. Listen every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts, and watch full video episodes on Crunchyroll or on the Crunchyroll YouTube channel. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Of, yeah, B-movie, monster movie sort of set up. And then the second one is your horror film, uh, your war film. And then the third is a prison film. But as you're going along, they're getting increasingly more interested in the theological and in the the idea of what it is to create. And, all, uh, and, and the fourth one, which is kind of, for many people, was the, and you actually say as well that it's like the the alien movie that doesn't feel like it's in the alien universe, yes. but it but it does. Well, you you said earlier as well. It sort of clicks with your thesis, you know, very neatly. Yeah, that surprised me. Um, when I first proposed the book, I genuinely wasn't sure that I was going to be able to write a full chapter about alien resurrection. And the more that I sat with that movie, and the more that I pondered it. Um, the more I realized, like, actually, this is a really rich theological text, despite its extremely flippant script, uh, which was Mm. penned by Joss Whedon. And then the almost madcap approach that Junet takes to directing it, it feels like it's a movie that's at war with itself. I genuinely don't enjoy watching it. But out of all of the alien movies, I think it's one of the most interesting to think about because it is the one that is wrestling with a lot of those heady questions about what does it mean to exist and what does it mean to try to harness the power of the alien for capitalistic and militaristic ends. And a lot of that comes back to Winona Ryder's character, Call, Mm. whom I did not know was an android when I first watched that movie. I also didn't know that Ash was an android when I first watched Alien. I'd known about the chestburster sequence for a really long time. I'd been aware of the film just as part of, you know, cultural osmosis. But every time the androids pop up in this series, they kind of surprise me because I think they're almost the stealth protagonists of the series. Obviously, Ellen Ripley is the real true protagonist, but... The way that the films treat androids as being sort of background furniture for the first three films, they're Mm. essentially tools that have been created by humanity that look a little bit like us, which is really creepy when you think about it. And then Junet and Whedon really lean into that creepiness and the idea of, well, we've created human beings ourselves or we've created androids ourselves 
in our own image, mm. what would they think about all of this? And the fact that 200 years in the future, you get a lot of technological advancements, you get some updates in, you know, aesthetics and fashion and a lot of very like late 90s apparel and you know ponytails and leather and big boots and everything. But then you also get this idea that the androids themselves have evolved and have decided to create their own androids also in their own image. And they have rejected everything that capitalism and humanity stand for. That to me sounds very interesting. And it also feels a lot more hopeful than the rest of the alien movies because it posits that maybe someday we will be able to break this cycle of sin and endangerment and taking other people for granted and at less than face value. And you get some of that in Winona Ryder's performance, which I'm going to admit is not necessarily the strongest of her career. <laughs> um, but you do get a lot of that self-loathing that she feels being knowing that she was brought into existence in a world that does not value her for who she is. And yet she's going to still try to fight to make that world better anyway. And she's kind of the Ripley of her movie because Ripley also isn't really Ripley. She's died and come back wrong. And mm. the two of them interplaying with each other, especially the conversation that they have in the chapel on the ship in a very quiet moment where Call crosses herself when she enters the chapel. And Ripley asks, did you have that programmed into you too? And Call doesn't answer that question, but I think the movie says, yes, she has, specifically because of what we were talking about a little bit earlier. Like We have all of these big questions about who we are and why we exist in this universe. And I think anybody who is created and has that self-consciousness is going to wonder that at one point or another. And for Call, there seems to be something valuable in that religious framework that she's going to use in order to shape the way that she does her work mm, mm, that's, that's that's fascinating and i mean it I, it's interesting as well to look at that the series the way you do as a, as in that span um and it, it emerges to me it appears to me as if what we're actually looking at is not a quadrology and then two films it, it would be the the so looking at the the history of how those films got made that would be the temptation but actually you're looking at two trilogies you're looking at a trilogy which is very much based in uh, a sort of um a, a variety of sort of cinematic genres and then you've got the the next trilogy each i mean just the fact that each has a colon suffix you know uh you know mm. alien resurrection alien well now prometheus doesn't really work but alien covenant you, <laughs> you know? could say it's alien prometheus yeah, potentially yeah, yeah potentially um but you've got that idea of, of of mainlining um you know uh mythology and it's and it you know the subtext becoming text or at least becoming text after the colon I love that read. I hadn't actually thought about them as being two cohesive trilogies pushed together. Um, but you're you're absolutely right. And I do think that Resurrection is the movie on which the entire series turns because we mm. finally do get that point of view from an android. And then Prometheus and Alien Covenant really lean into that perspective, so much so that the humans almost feel ancillary to the rest of the entire story. And I think that that's totally fine. We've had our story and we've had a really good protagonist in the form of Ripley. Um, maybe it's time to focus on the consequences of our actions a little bit more rather than just rehashing the same story over and over and over again. And I know one of the critiques of Alien Covenant is that you kind of get 
um, a character in Daniels who feels as though she's supposed to be Ripley. And I don't think that that's really necessarily true. Like she mm. is a final girl protagonist, but she's not dealing with the same questions that Ripley is because she doesn't have to deal with the same disillusionment of a break from the company that's sustained her. She's really more dealing with grief. Mm. Um, and that's something that a lot of horror movies lately have been doing. So I don't want to get too much into the, you know, it's actually about grief read because that's something that I think you can slap on a lot of horror movies these days. But I do think that it's interesting that her brain is completely elsewhere in alien covenant. And the movie kind of treats that as just, here's a, here's a decent framing device for this. But what we're really going to talk about is the plight of the androids and what happens when you really start to lean into the place that has been carved out for you that you don't necessarily fit in, in the form of David and also in the form of Walter. I love that double performance by Fassbender, by the way, it's one of my favorite things about that movie. Yeah. And it, it definitely nails its colors to the mast in terms of this is the central thing that we're actually really interested in here is is, is the conversation between these two guys who are not yeah. guys uh, you know as a, <laughs> as a uh, that idea as well of um i just wanted to pick up on the, what you were saying about the use of grief at the moment in cinema is one of the most uh, wildly irritating it reminded me of like in the 80s every cop was divorced because mm. basically the subtext was he's not gay but he's, you know, sexually available. He's, you know, sexually active, uh, but he doesn't have a partner, but he's not gay. He's heterosexual, definitely. And it was just such a, you know, it was just such a shorthand for having, for saying that. Um, and now with, with grief, it just seems to say, oh, these are deep characters. So, you know, Wes Anderson in Asteroid City, and I think in kind of all of his movies, uses grief. Someone has died. One of the characters has lost a wife or lost mm. uh, somebody. And it, it's used instead of character, you know? Mm. And it's just like, ah, oh, you know, it's you're not really exploring it. You're just occasionally having someone say, oh, things have got harder since my wife died, you know? And it's like... I. Uh, I don't know. I I find that 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 I think is there a term for it, fridging or something maybe, or maybe that's fridging. Else. Yeah, that comes from comic books, but yeah, it has yeah. to do with um a specifically a female death in a character's backstory in order to give them some sort of motivation. It's funny um because I loved Asteroid City, but I think mm. uh, the read I took from it wasn't so much the grief as mm. it was the who are we and what are we doing in the universe part. Mm. And the layering of those questions and the use of art both within the movie and then also as a metatextual part of the movie to say, like, we don't really know what we're doing. We're just sort of fumbling around here. Um, and I think it's Adrian Brody who delivers the line about, like, you don't have to understand it. You just have to go out and perform it really resonated with me because I also don't understand what I'm doing. And um <laughs> I feel that plight, but the way that Anderson expresses that within such, I don't know, regimented isn't the right word, rigid isn't really the right word, but so precise bounds, mm. um, that movie worked for me. And normally Anderson doesn't always work for me. There's some of his movies that I love very much and a few that I feel very ambivalent towards. Um, but for whatever reason, Asteroid City grabbed me. And I think it was because there's that subtext of grief in there, but I think it's so much more about the looking outwards after grief and trying to mm. say like, well, now what? <laughs> and I don't know that he comes to a good answer. And I like that he isn't telling us how to feel or how to think 
after a fundamental change like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I don't. I mean, I enjoy. I I've I enjoy all Wes Anderson films, um, mm. but I think his his great films always have to have this element of of anti Wes Anderson. You have to drop. Mm. You know, in the in the spirit of Prometheus, you have to drop a little bit of that black goo. <laughs> into the into the mix to just sort of mess things up. I wanted to ask you as well, like, um, because uh, I don't think I've uh, we've mentioned this earlier, but when you actually came across the Alien franchise, what was what was your sort of personal journey? Because obviously you've 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 experienced these before you had any notion of writing the book. I, I'm, I'm oh, assuming. long before, yeah. yeah. Exactly, yeah. Um, I think the first one I saw was actually Aliens, and I'm pretty sure it was when it was just on repeat on TNT. Mm. Um, So it would have been like playing in the afternoon. And I'm pretty sure the first Alien scene that I ever saw was the boardroom where Ripley is challenging the board members as they're having that hearing about, you destroyed all of our fancy equipment. And she says, no, there were actual people who died in this disaster too. Um, And then my family had a movie night while I was out babysitting. And I came back and discovered that they had seen Alien without me. So at 10 p.m., I knew they were going to return the DVD to the library. So I decided, screw it, I'm going to sit down and I'm going to watch Alien at 10 p.m. at night alone at 16 in my parents' giant house, which was the ideal way to see it, I think, (laughs) without having seen it opening weekend in 1979. Um terrified me. I was flipping lights on across the house as I was going to bed at one in the morning because I didn't know what to do with myself. And I had known about the chestburster sequence just through cultural osmosis. It was something that I was aware of, but I didn't know about Ash. And at the time, I was a huge Lord of the Rings fan. Mm. Um, So kind of ruined Bilbo Baggins for me a little bit. Ian Holmes doing such a great, very different performance in that role. And Uh, The movie sort of grabbed me and then I just sort of let it lay dormant. And I watched it alone a couple of other times after that. Watched Aliens, didn't really watch Alien 3 or Alien Resurrection until I must have been on study abroad. And Mm. I think it was just it was a very lonely night and a friend had given me all four movies. And I was just sitting alone in my dorm room watching the Alien movies back to back to back. And uh, I hit a moment in Alien Resurrection where there was a particularly gross death. It's the moment where someone gets the back of his head bitten out and then he reaches around and and grabs a chunk of his own brain and looks Mm. at it. And I kept expecting the movie to cut away and it didn't cut away and it didn't cut away and it didn't cut away. And then the moment I saw that piece of brain, I was like, nope, absolutely not. I'm shutting this off. (laughs) And then I didn't think about the Alien movies For a couple of years after that, I wasn't a horror movie person growing up. I wasn't even much of a movie person growing up. I'd just been curious, and I felt like my curiosity had been sated. Um, And then, flash forward a couple of years, I meet my now husband, and we're both in the city of Chicago, but we're living on opposite ends of the city. So we have to find ways to meet each other sort of in the middle, because otherwise it would be an hour and a half on public transit to see each other. So the Music Box Theater here in Chicago, which is a wonderful movie palace, they still have the pipe organ and everything. Oh, wow. Um, Yeah, they're great. I love them. I sing their praises every chance I get. I'm actually going to see Oppenheimer there again in 70 millimeter this weekend. Um, But the music box was doing an Alien Day double feature, Alien and Aliens back to back. 
aliens in 70 millimeter. And my boyfriend at the time, now husband, had never seen aliens before. So I suggested we go and we see that because it was kind of a good litmus test for our relationship. If he was going to be down with science fiction, then I knew that it would probably work out. And they cranked the sound on that movie because it was in 70 mil. The sound was super crisp. It looked really good. And um, he was super into it. So I was like, okay, maybe maybe this relationship will eventually go somewhere. And it did. We're married. We've been married for five years now. Um, and that sort of reignited my interest in the series. And I went back and I rewatched most of them. Um, and then they've just sort of been living in my bloodstream ever since. And now that I've written a book about them, I don't think I'm ever going to be able to forget about them. And at this point, I love every single one of those movies. Some of them I prefer to think about more than I prefer to watch them. Like mm. I don't really feel a desire to go and revisit Alien Resurrection unless I'm watching it with somebody else who's interested and has never seen it before. Mm. But I'll rewatch Alien Covenant any day and I'll rewatch Aliens any day. Um, and uh, yeah, I don't know. I just... I love the themes that they're playing with. And I also love that they're just really good, scary movies, especially the earlier ones. And they don't aspire to be anything more than that. And I think that's their real strength is that they're so good at what they're doing on the surface that all of the subtext just kind of floats to the top and is crystal clear. Yeah, I, I think that's such a, that's so interesting because I think that's what someone like Giga uh manages to do as well because he's just basically doing production design he's just you know he's doing the alien yes. design he's just designing the costume and the look of the spaceships and the this and the that and yet by doing it, that job so well it just raises everything to another level and all mm -hmm. those questions come out that if you'd had another designer you just might not have you might not have even bothered with one thing that uh, well two things actually from your description of alien uh, earlier in our conversation one thing i remember watching that and we used to play a video game on our you know old pcs when uh, i was a kid which was alien and it was very had great music and stuff and um mm. it wouldn't let you self-destruct the ship without the cat <laughs> and it always used to frustrate me it was like oh, why do we need the cat you know i mean in the film <laughs> i get it because it's you know Ripley and she loves the cat, I guess. So, okay. But, you know, that shouldn't stop me from. And so we'd have all these theories about, oh, because the computer won't let you self destruct if it, if it detects a life form. That's all. Or some, mm. we had some sort of rationale for that, I remember. And the other thing that I only just thought of while reading your book is why does this huge ship have a self destruct anyway? I mean, what. Yeah. What 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 purpose does a? I mean, it's it, it's real life analog would be like a huge tanker, you know, in the mm -hmm. ocean, and you don't have like a, a few buttons to sort of you you turn this three times and press the button, and then the ship blows up. I mean, what circumstances would you have? What like space pirates or something? Oh man, maybe it's like scuttling the ship. Yeah, which I know there yeah. isn't just a single button That's in true. order That's to be able to true. do that. But yeah, I, I suspect that they're kind of taking the, the seafaring analog in there and they're just throwing in a convenient, well, it's not a very convenient button, but they're throwing in that ability to scuttle mm, the ship mm. and to raise the stakes. And I love that that button is so inconvenient because it's clearly designed to keep the safety of the ship in mind over mm. the safety of its crew members. Um, there are all of the safeties that Ripley has to go through. She has to push several buttons and turn several levers. 
all in a specific order in a way that deliberately slows her down. And mm. I can see that the, the mm. thought process of the company behind that, they're thinking about safety measures. They're thinking about, we don't want just anybody to go in here and flip a switch and then the entire ship explodes. We want to make sure that this is something that somebody actually wants to do. But that system is also very deliberately designed to make it so difficult to scuttle the ship that in an actual emergency, it's almost completely useless. And then disarming it is also completely useless. And that feels like the company probably unconsciously, but still very deliberately protecting their profits over the lives of the people on board the ship. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And then, and, and in that way, we sort of circle back to the notion of evil, which we began with. Um, yes. uh, of you know, and I, I, I mean, I I was I mentioned earlier, and, and you referred to it, uh, the uh, idea that the alien is is a, um, you know, like like a predator or like like. You know, I mean, I think uh, Zizek, uh, Slavoj Zizek uh, has this idea of the big fear, you know, and mm. he he relates it to God as well in the sense that, you know, the shark in Jaws. Similarly, you know, if you put all your fears in one place, it liberates you from all the daily fears, the, the little phobias and the little problems. You know, you're, you're no, Chief Brody is no longer scared of water because he's he's killed the shark you know what yeah. el- you know what else is in the water except the shark you know yeah um, he, he's managed to uh i don't know exercise it almost the shark's almost demonic in that movie too um, absolutely yes yes mm-hmm. and i somebody uh, there was someone on twitter earlier on I, I just tweeted i've just rewatched it with my daughter and somebody said oh um what does this shark symbolize and it was like well, it's a bit of a reductive way of looking at it i mean it does i think it does symbolize stuff but i don't think it's any one thing you know i think there's a there's several angles you can look at it from i completely agree um and i think that's why i shied away from just treating just the alien as Mm. a treatment of evil because that feels necessarily pretty reductive and i think the strength of this series is that you can take everything that you have in yourself to these movies when you watch them and then you can take away whatever interpretation you want from the series so because i'm so focused on that theological bent naturally i'm going to be thinking about the problem of evil but there's also questions of feminism abortion Mm. what Mm. it is to be you know existing in a corporate workspace um you could take this as kind of a, a marxist parable almost and i think all of those readings are good Mm. Um, it's just that that question of evil is something that provided a good focus point for me to consider all of them. Um, but the alien series, I think kind of adapts to the viewer in a way, kind of like the xenomorph does, like it'll Mm. take the shape of whatever host it has. And that also works with those textual interpretations of the films, too. And I do think that that's the case for basically just about every movie that anybody watches. You're going to come to it with baggage and then you're going to come away with an interpretation that's partly based on that baggage. Um, It's just that it's so much at the forefront that that really works for the Alien series. But I'm really glad that the Alien isn't just a metaphor Mm -hmm. for what it is to be a woman in traditionally male spaces. I think that the moment that the metaphor becomes the entire point, then you've kind of lost the power of the art in the telling because then it's just a vehicle for preaching a sermon. And I'm definitely not interested in any of that. (laughs) 
<laughs> yeah, absolutely. And and it, it, it's interesting that it does sort of morph into, you know, that's why it's so good at hiding in the ships, because it kind of ends up looking like the ships that it's hiding in, you know, mm-hmm. uh, right at the very end. It looks like, yeah, I don't think that's a coincidence. I think that's it's that's kind of one of its superpowers, if you like, that it's 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 reflecting what what is around it. Yes. Um but uh and and I mean that notion of evil as well would kind of presume that the alien could be good at some point, you know. Um yeah. that it could choose to do something good, you know. That, that so in that sense, you know, to to you know paraphrase Nietzsche, it's kind of beyond good and evil because it's it it, it doesn't have that no it's not operating on that level. It's that nothingness from beyond mm. the stars. Yeah. I know there mm. are quite a lot of reads of the Alien series in terms of um, Kristeva's The Abject, where mm. it's something where you can kind of push all of those fears onto the alien, and then you can treat that as something that invades people's borders and boundaries and the the borders that they've set up for themselves within their lives. You know, it's it's neither male nor female. It's something that's going to literally invade your space and invade your body. Um, but that's also, I, I don't know, I feel like objection is something that's a little bit different for every single person. And it's also that societal construct of there are certain things that we do not do. There are certain lines that we do not cross. And the fact that the company is essentially designed to create those borders and boundaries for people so that they'll follow the system. They'll do what they need to do in order to be um, good workers and then also to turn that profit. And then by extension, Ripley then also becomes abject because she's going to cross over that border and she's going to defy the system and the boundaries that the company has set up for her. And she's going to say, what you've done in setting yourself up purely for profit is also evil and wrong. And by doing that, she kind of opens up the possibility of another better way where human beings can just exist without also being profit machines. Do you do you regret the uh I think the likely fact that Scott isn't going to return to the alien franchise because I mean I think he had a concluding film he wanted to do but mm-hmm. uh you know I'm I'm not sure he, he he's going to manage um do you, do you or do or do you like Alien Covenant to the point that you think no actually that that works for me as a conclusion Oh man part of the reason why it works for me is because Scott was actually able to do what he wanted to do with the original film. So Mm. the script was written before they started shooting, but they kept kicking around different ways to change the movie and change the ending. And famously, Yafet Koto was like, I'm not going to get killed by this alien. I'm going to kill it. Mm. Um, But one of the ideas that they kicked around when they were nearing the end of production was, what if the alien does get Ripley in the shuttle? And Sigourney Weaver was on board with this. Scott was on board with this. I think the producers nipped that idea in the bud, but the original ending was going to be the alien kills Ripley and then it makes the final transmission using her voice. And so the end of Covenant, when I saw that coming, when those final, I don't know, 60 seconds or so happen, when David impersonates Walter, takes over the ship and disappears for parts unknown with um, extremely bad intentions in mind, I immediately thought Ridley Scott got to do what he always wanted to do with this series. And he also approached it in such a sideways way Mm. that both stories can stand alone. So 
the end of Alien Covenant is an extremely bleak one. And part of me is curious about what happens afterwards, because I think Scott's done a good job of not just drawing a straight line between each of his versions of this story. But I'm also really like I'm curious to know where he would have gone, but I'm also really happy with where the series ended up because it's just such a bleak tone and ending and it truly worked for me. I I went back and I saw that movie in the theaters another two mm. times after seeing it because I loved that ending so much. Um, it's such a despairing tone and you don't really get that in that way very often. So I really value it because it felt like Scott was finally getting to win out with his artistic vision. Wow. I'm going to have to, I'm going to rewatch that. That's that you've, I've got it on DVD uh, on Blu-ray downstairs and I've seen it a, a few times, but that, that this conversation makes me want to go back and see it again. Oh, I'm so uh, glad. Good. <laughs> <laughs> and, and that idea of the original uh, ending to Alien is such a 1970s ending, isn't it? It's like it every every conspiracy theory, every you know, every um, you know, the three days of the Condor. Every film, mm -hmm. even The Graduate, sort of has that sort of last minute. You think it's a happy ending? No, it isn't. You know. <laughs> Yeah, it's funny. I don't think of Alien as being a paranoid thriller, but it is definitely of its time there for sure. Yeah, yeah. The conversation would would oh, you know yes. would slot in well with a on a double bill. You could there are so many films that you could put together. Um yeah, as a as paranoid conspiracy. It's, that, that's absolutely it. You're right. Absolutely. Um so uh, Sarah, absolutely brilliant talking to you. I've got one last question before uh before we close today, which is um is there a book, a film book that you could recommend for our listeners? Yeah, um I'm gonna cheat a little bit. Mm -hmm. Um I have two. I couldn't decide between them. Um, the first one is A.O. Scott's Better Living Through Criticism, which was mm -hmm. what turned me on to criticism in the first place. I actually had the chance to go and listen to him talk at a book signing when he was first promoting it. Um, and then the second one is Andre Tarkovsky's Sculpting in Time. Oh, nice. um, and the version that I have was translated by Kitty Hunter Blair. And it's just such a beautifully poetic book about what does it mean to make a movie, but also what does it mean to make art? And I appreciate Tarkovsky's just unrelenting, uncompromising approach towards making his own work. Um, Stalker is one of my all-time favorite movies. And, oh, me too. Me too. Oh, I adore it. Um, mm. That was a movie that bent my brain when I first watched it. And I'm so glad that I did. Um, and I kind of think of my critical life as being before Stalker and after Stalker. Mm. Um, and then reading Sculpting in Time was something that I think illuminated a few things, even though it didn't necessarily explain all of them, which is my favorite approach towards art anyway. <laughs> there is a brilliant book by uh, a British writer called Jeff Dyer. Yes, um, Zona. I've read oh, it. There you go. There you go. Mm -hmm. I was just going to recommend it, but you've already read it. And that's amazing because it's so it's so much about him. Not he. I don't think he rewatches the film. He sort of writes the book from his memory of re, of watching the film so many times when he was young. Mm -hmm. So it, it, it it's uh, yeah. Uh, Jeff Dyer is just one of my favorite writers. So him writing about one of my favorite films is uh, is a very sweet place to be. It's a natural fit. Yeah. And I appreciate that he makes it so personal. I think all writing mm. is personal anyway. So you might as well just reveal your hand in it while you're doing that. Yeah, I, I agree. I think um, I think that's not it doesn't work for everybody. But when mm -hmm. it's done well, it's done. It, it, it's the best 
is the best, you know. Okay. Um, absolutely brilliant talking to you, Sarah. So much for, for being on Writers on Film. Thank you so much for having me, John. This was a delight. 